I've been paying extra attention to all the coughing in the room today, so I'm not alone. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. Thank you for praying for me, trusting the Lord. Bev said, I will keep my voice until the last amen, so hopeful there. Um, One of my favorite older movies, not titled It's a Wonderful Life or Fiddler on the Roof, is Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Classic musical, set in the mid-1800s, the story of a woodsman named Adam who ventures into town and finds a hardworking cook named Millie, marries her and brings her home only to her surprise. She's actually brought into a home with six other brothers, Benjamin, Caleb, Daniel, Ephraim, Gideon, and Frank. They all live there. Um, Long story short, the brothers decide that they've been missing out. Um, Millie really kind of talks it up. They go into town and kind of bring a ruckus as they, as they spot the, the, the young ladies of the town. Uh, they go back home and they're just dejected and sad. They, they really, really want to marry these, these young ladies. Uh, so they go back into town and they basically steal the girls. They basically take them and carry them back home just as an avalanche falls and nobody can go and find out what happened to their daughters. Uh, it's kind of like the story of the Benjaminites in the book of Judges. I'll leave the rest of the story for you. I'm intentionally leaving it hanging. Uh, but it's definitely not a recommended way of going to find a wife. All of that. Different cultures around the world handle marriages differently. In Uganda, if you're interested in someone, you would never go directly to the person or even to her father. You would go and speak to the young lady's uh, uncle, the, the, the father's brother. My friend Jatin is from India, and there uh, arranged marriage is, is a norm. And some of you have heard me talk about Jatin, and what a story. He came to us in 2005 and came back and started to work with us a few years later. He was in his early 30s, and I remember the day he told me, my father has found my my wife. And I'm like, really? Have you met her? No. Um, I'm going, going to go back to India and, and meet her. And so he did. And he came back to us and I'm like, how did it go? How long did you get to talk? And he said, well, 45 minutes. And I'm like, what? <laughs> he shared his testimony, talked about Uganda. She knew if she were to marry him, she would have to leave India, leave her family and go to Uganda with with Jiten to join him in the work that God had called him to there at that season with us. Um, and she did. We got to bring them into our fold and watch them fall in love really after they were married. It was quite an amazing thing to behold. They're a precious couple and a precious family. And there might be something to that, you know, just even thinking fathers here could probably do a pretty good job of uh, arranging marriages for sons and daughters, the risen king betrothal services uh, could be a viable ministry option. Not really. Uh, because when we come into the story of Genesis 24, some of us, most of us, definitely our kids, we're very familiar with this story. It's a story that, that is told. It's a fun story to tell because it's how Isaac gets a bride, how God provides Rebecca for Isaac definitely not meant to be the authoritative guide for how to find a wife. In fact, Martin Luther argued strongly that the story does not aim to give instruction for how people in general should go about finding a spouse. 
While that's true, there is still a lot to glean in that area, as we shall see. But this story is about so much more. You see, Abraham and Isaac have great need, perhaps even greater than what just appears on the surface. And we get to watch how God will incredibly meet that need. Now, the truth is, we all have great needs. Every one of us here gathered desperately need God, some even miraculously, to meet the needs that are before us. And whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Gerald and Jane Ellen or put your name in there, we all desperately need the God who not only meets our needs, but he offers himself to us as he walks with us through the twists and the turns of life. Because God is the God who does steadfast love and faithfulness with his people. Our God is the God who does steadfast love and faithfulness with his people. Let's pray as we come into the story together. Lord God, today we pray that you would give us eyes to behold you, our God who does steadfast love and faithfulness, our God who is the true answer to our desperate needs. And thank you for the story before us. Thank you for your work in Abraham and in Isaac and and all that we will see unveiled through your word. Lord, I pray that you who knows the needs of each heart here would meet us in our need, that you would give us eyes to behold you, to be wowed by your sovereign grace and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began our final journey with Abraham, really through the last two stories of his life, the last two episodes. And Abraham would be confronted with questions, situations, and realities surrounding death, and then what would happen concerning his son. And we saw God's faithfulness to Abraham last week through the death of Sarah, and God's giving Abraham a place in the promised land to bury his precious wife, even as he mourned and grieved her. And he buried her in faith, and he grieved for her in faith, and he looked forward to the great hope of the God of promise. Now there's a second issue, because he is old, and his son is not yet married. He is nearly 140, though the text simply says, and Chapter 24, verse 1, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. But then it adds something. You want to catch this as it launches us into the narrative. It says that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. It's a good end of life kind of statement, but it takes us back. Here, as it brings us to the end, it echoes a reminder at the very beginning in Genesis 12 when God called Abraham to leave his kindred and to leave his country and to go to a land that he had never known and to follow God in faith and obedience in that place. And God made him incredible promises. God promised to make him a great nation. God promised to give him land. God promised that he would be his God. And God promised that through him, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And now we come to chapter 24, the Lord had blessed Abraham 
in all things. God had kept his promise and blessed. But there is a serious issue because even though it's true that God has blessed, how will his promise of offspring come through Isaac in the land if he does not have a wife? How will the families of the earth be blessed through his offspring if he's not yet married? Okay, this is a personal issue, but it has global implications, so much bigger. Isaac is now 40 years old. There has been plenty of time for God to act on behalf of Isaac, plenty of time for God to bring a wife to Isaac, but he hasn't. It's not like Isaac just ignored this, right? But we're not brought into Isaac's journey. Just like in the prior chapter, we don't know Isaac's journey of grief with his mom. Abraham's the focus. And here, we don't know Isaac's story. We're just brought into it recognizing this is a legitimate, great need. The truth is, Isaac is a secondary character still, even in this story, because God is doing more than just what centers around Isaac. Abraham will find a servant, a young girl named Rebecca, and even her family. The issues that we face are always bigger than just ourselves. The issue is bigger than Isaac, even if he does not know that yet. And there is a genuine need. This is not a desire. This is not a hope. It's genuine. It requires God to act according to his promise, and it requires Abraham to exercise faith and obedience in response. What a great way to judge whether our needs are genuine needs or wants or desires. This genuine need requires God to act according to his promise. It requires Abraham to act in faith and obedience, but how? In the past, we saw Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. We saw them act according to what they thought was best in their eyes, but not this time. He knows he cannot take a wife from the Canaanites. That's a clear no, because God has said he will judge the Canaanites. It would be wrong. It would be acting contrary to faith and obedience to take the easy route. We think about Lot and his daughters, and we're like, no, don't make that mistake. Don't do it. In fact, if Abraham had chosen to take a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites, it would be to compromise with those who God had declared to be under his judgment. And it's an easy route for all of us to take when we have needs that are pressing and we do not see the answer before us. Little compromise, little things. Hasn't God blessed me with this job where I'm only required to compromise a little, right? Isn't it okay to be in this relationship when it only negatively impacts me a little? Think about the little compromises we come as we seek to meet our, that come, that we embrace as we seek to meet our own needs. Yet Abraham will not compromise. So what is he to do? He doesn't see the answer before him. Well, just like the decisive action that Abraham took with the Hittites finding a burial plot for Sarah, he knows exactly what he needs to do. He knows what faith and obedience require. He enlists the help of his servant, the oldest of his household, and he binds him to an oath. Listen to verses two through four. He says, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son 
from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. There's a kind of reversal here because God had called Abraham to leave his country and his kindred, his family, to leave them to go to a land. And now he's saying, hey, go back to my country and my family for a wife for Isaac. But it's not Abraham to return there, and it's not Isaac to return there, because God has called them to the land, and to the land they must remain faithful. But the servant will go, just as Abraham calls him. This is the most trusted servant of all of his house, and he binds him to this oath to go back to his homeland to take a wife. The servant wisely asks, he's thinking, because there's a very practical issue what if the woman doesn't want to come? I mean, think about it. It makes sense, right? Sure, I'll leave my family and follow a stranger to a faraway place in order to marry a man I've never met. Talk about fear of trafficking, right? In our modern day. No way. Like, that's crazy. And I love Abraham's response in verse 7 because Abraham comes and says, the Lord... The God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. What confident hope Abraham has in the God who has acted on his behalf throughout all of his life He says, this is the way, and the God that I know, the God who does steadfast love and faithfulness with his people, he will go before you, and he will bring this about. He's confident, but if not, he tells the servant, but if she won't go, I release you from this oath, only make sure my son Isaac does not go back to the land, back to the home home country. So the story is set. The possible tension is established. Will the servant find a bride, a wife for Isaac? Will she be willing to leave everything to come and marry Isaac? Will God go before him truly and prepare a way for the meeting of this great need? And now we get to follow the story. But before we do, I just want us to notice something. I wish I had it to put up on the, the power, not PowerPoint, the keynote. Um, I want you to notice how the introduction, verses 1 through 9, actually echoes back to Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. There's this language that is drawn in on purpose because it wants to draw attention to what God has done and to what God will do. And that's a a very important piece of this entire story. Think about it. In Genesis 12, God said, leave your kindred in your country. And here, he says, return to the kindred and the country. In Genesis 12, God promised, I will bless you. Here, God had blessed him. In Genesis 14, Abraham said that I have raised my hand. He says this to the king of Sodom. I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And he makes the servant. He says, I... That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God 
of heaven and earth. In Genesis 15, it said, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Here, Abraham quotes that, the God who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. And you think about the story in Genesis 18 with the angels that come to him before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There were three men standing in front of him and he's speaking with the angel of the Lord. And here he says that God will send his angel before you. And so all of this is saying, it's like this is a capstone. This last narrative story is like a capstone drawing together all of the themes of Abraham's whole life up to this point. We don't have the time today to explore those themes, but it's rich and it's beautiful. But it's like it's saying that God who has been faithful all through this is the God who is faithful right to the end of Abraham's life. And that is a powerful message for us. Well, we get to go into the story in verse 10 and It's too long for us to go through every verse. I'm going to retell it a bit and we'll see how we weave our way through it. The servant departs. He takes 10 camels laden with gifts, very nice gifts, for the the woman that he hopes to find and for her family. He makes the trek probably around 10 days. He arrives at the city of Nahor, Abraham's brother, and it's at evening when the women come out to the well. That's so true in Uganda. It's always morning and evening that everybody's coming to the, to the borehole to get water for cooking or, or washing clothes or, or bathing. And so he knows this is the place to be. And it's at this point that the servant utters a prayer to himself. And he prays. He prays to the Lord, the God of his master, Abraham. And he asks him to grant him success. And he prays that out of all the women that come to the well, because there will be many, he prays this, may the one who grants me a drink and also offers to water my camels, God, may that be the one that you've appointed for Isaac. What's great about that prayer is it's not a test like Gideon's fleece. God, would you do this miraculous thing that's unexpected so that then I'll know it's your will. All right, we actually are not to put God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16 makes that very clear and Jesus actually quotes that. You do not put the Lord your God to the test as Satan comes and tempts him. But God is also kind and in a story like Gideon, he comes down and in his kindness, he does meet that. Um, But that is not a, a recipe that we are to follow. Be careful of that kind of thinking. I'll just put in my application, and if it gets accepted, I'll know it's God's will. Um, That can be dangerous. Here, the servant's prayer isn't for something crazy. He doesn't say if she's tall and has red hair, then I'll know she's the one. Instead, he is looking for a woman with a certain kind of character. To offer a stranger water is one thing, but to offer to water 10 camels is quite another thing. A camel can drink, after a long journey, 10 to 20 gallons of water. Her jar probably held around three gallons. Can you imagine, even conservatively, uh, even if it's 18 gallons per camel, that's about 60 jugs of water, fetching water, carrying, and watering. 
60 times. That'd take a lot of time and a lot of strength because that's a lot of work. The servant is looking for a woman with a certain kind of character, a heart of hospitality, right? That's important, but also a hard working heart that is willing to uh, suffer cost for the sake of serving another. You might call it the cost of, of, of loving someone uh, in this offer to water the camels. Verse 15 says, before he had finished speaking. Okay, he's praying this. All right, God, may this be before he was finished speaking, the text says, behold, and I always love the beholds, right? It's like, wow, Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Now the servant doesn't know this. He's telling us very clearly, like we get a heads up in the story. We know who this is. This is the name that was introduced to us back at the end of chapter 22, right? It's tying all of this together. This is what God has done. He has, has led this out. Before he had even finished speaking the prayer, God was already answering the prayer. That's, that's a, pretty sweet, uh, a pretty sweet answer. It's like God is saying, you know what, I, I've got this. Like, <laughs> even before you pray, I know the need and I'm already at work to meet the need. You can hear Jesus' words, right? As you pray, your, your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. Like he knows, he's at work, and we ask. And it's like here he's saying to the servant, I've got something. Like I've already prepared the answer. I'm at work. So the young woman comes. Moses adds on that the young woman was very attractive and had never been with a man. That's a helpful statement, right? It goes above and beyond what the servant had asked for, definitely a plus in this context. And the servant sees her and he runs to meet her, to ask her for some water. I I just picture this, this older gentleman just running to this young lady asking for water. And she not only gives him water, but then she does offer to water the camels. And the servant just watches her, quietly trying to discern if this is the Lord's answer or not. Again, he probably had some good bit of time as she's watering these camels. He's just sitting and watching. Now that's great because he doesn't just jump to a conclusion, right? God had answered his prayer even before he had prayed it or finished praying it, but there was a second requirement because Abraham had told him and made it clear that it had to be someone from Abraham's own relatives. So he watches and he wonders, could this be the one? And so when she finishes watering the camels, the servant simply asks her who she is and if she has room for them to spend the night. And the them is there because there are other people that have traveled with the servant. They're side characters. They don't make it into the story, but they are present. They're there. They have room for them. And it's at this moment that he learns that the beautiful young woman is Abraham's relative even as she offers for them to have a place to spend the night. Boy, this is all the servant needed to hear. 
We learn later that it's at this moment when she says her identity that he actually gives her the gifts that he had brought. And these are lavished gifts. And then he does something in verse 27. He bows and he worships the Lord for his love and his faithfulness to Abraham. What a response. So, oh, verse 26, it says that he bowed his head and worshiped and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. It's an amazing moment. God is not forsaken. God has faithfully answered. God has orchestrated things. God has brought things about that the servant could not even have dreamt and imagined. Remember in 1999, I was in Nairobi. I'd been staying in a youth hostel as I was going from Zambia around East Africa, checking out ministries to street kids and AIDS orphans. And this youth hostel was a bad place. It was not good for me to be there. My buddy Michael Philip came and he met me. He flew in from Chicago just at that moment. And he sees this hostel and he's like, oh man, I wish I would have been thinking. I have a, a friend I went to uh, Bible school with years back. His name is Tomas Obunde. And Tomas is, is from Nairobi. Ah, I could have emailed him. Uh, maybe we could have stayed with him. And we're like, oh, I guess that's okay. You know, oh well. We were sitting and we were praying in this little guest house. I was drinking my favorite drink, Stony. Michael was having a cook. And we were just praying. We were praying for the journey before us. We were going to be going to Uganda and Rwanda and back around. This was a big journey. And we were trusting God to lead us on the journey, needing God to lead us, needing God to orchestrate things that we couldn't set up. And as we're sitting there praying, this strong urge came over me. We got to leave now. I mean, it was crazy. And Michael is in the middle of praying. And it's like, no, we've got to go. We've got to leave now. And I was like, Michael, Michael. And he's praying. He's like, yes. And I'm like, we got to go. I know this is weird, but we really got to go. And he's like, okay. So we paid our, our sodas. We got, left the place. We walk out. And he's like, well, which direction? I'm like, this way. We walk down the street and this car comes driving by and this arm comes flying out. You, you stay right there. And we're like, oh, this is crazy. What's going on? I mean, Nairobi is huge. Millions of people. This car turns around and comes and pulls in. And of course, can you guess who it was? At that moment, Tomas Obunde drove by, recognized Michael. <laughs> it was awesome. Took us into his home, got us out of that youth hostel, um, took good care of us. Right? There's something amazing. We just praised and worshiped God who knew the need, who was already at work, unexpected, in unexpected ways, and he met that need so faithfully. And here is the servant, right? He's on a long journey. He has no idea, is this gonna succeed? What's going on, right? He knows that, that Abraham's faith is that God has gone before him. And here's the servant praying, and here is God answering, wow, and he just worships. Oh God, thank you that you have not forsaken your steadfast love and your faithfulness. At this, Rebecca, she runs. She runs. You imagine what she's thinking, right? Because she has just learned information through the servant's prayer that God, the God of his master Abraham, has led him to a relative's house. Rebecca bolts and tells 
Everyone at home, you would not believe what just happened to me at the well, right? Um, Her brother Laban saw the gifts that Abraham had given to her. He heard what she reported. And you almost wonder, has it been 75 years since they've heard anything about this brother, Abraham, who left home and went to wander in a faraway place? I don't know. Um, Here, of course, the servant is announcing that Yahweh is at work, that Yahweh has brought this about, Abraham's God. And so Laban runs to the servant and tells him, come home, come home. All right, so the scene shifts from the well back into their home and the animals are cared for and food is prepared and feet are washed and it's time to eat. If I'm that servant, I am very excited. But he throws a curveball and he will not eat until he speaks the message that he has come with. And they're like, okay, speak. And so what does he do? Well, he recounts the Lord's blessing of Abraham. He recounts the gift of Isaac's birth. He recounts the oath that was taken to find a wife for Isaac among the relatives. He recounts the issue that he raised to Abraham, right? What if the woman won't follow me back? He recounts Abraham's confidence. God will go before him to take a wife for Isaac from his relatives. And he recounts that he'll be released from the oath if they will not give her to you. Then he recounts his prayer to God at the well and Rebekah's response in watering the camels. Verse 49 really leads to the, the key point here. In verse 49, the servant says, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left, right? The fate of the world hangs in the balance. The blessing of the nations. And the servant doesn't try to manipulate or cajole to get what he wants. He knows that God will bring about his purpose according to his sovereign will. And so he just puts it out there and waits. How hard that is for most of us. I would have been trying to just convince them like, and so of course God is in this. And so of course this is what you need to do, right? Of course it would be wrong for you. It's not what he does. He just lays it out. Verse 50, we get Laban and Bethuel, the father, their answer. They answer together, right? It's almost like it's, it's pictured as an answer in unison. The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Okay, that's a great response. All right, Rebecca's here. Take her as the Lord has spoken. And we'll learn more about Laban in later stories, right? Here he's presented positively. Um, We'll get a better idea of Laban's character later on. But God is clearly in this, so why should we stand in the way? And that really sets up the final scene. Because the servant, I'm sure he slept well that night, rises in the morning, he's ready to head back, Laban and Rebecca's mother ask if they, they can just keep her for 10 days, all right? And, and I read that and I'm thinking, is that, is that like a cultural stall tactic? Um, not sure what was going on there. It seems that something was. Uh, not sure though. But the servant is set. Man, he is going to get on his way. And so they, they recall, or sorry, they respond by calling Rebecca to ask if she's willing to go. 
And they just ask her, will you go with this man? You got to just picture it. Will you go right now with this man that you've known for 12 hours to a land you've never been to in order to marry a man you've never met? Decide now. What does she say? It's a great response. I will go. That's the end of verse 58. I will go. Settle. In any cultural context, it's crazy. I thought my, uh, our friend Sika, I thought her parents were crazy to allow their daughter to marry Jaten, not knowing very much. They knew that it was a good Christian family there in India, a good reputation, but they didn't really know Jaten. He's living in Africa. Sure, marry a daughter. Take her to Africa. Go ahead, right? Laura's parents were crazy. You, you want to marry our daughter? And, and I was the Africa guy. You know, we were like, hey, we're willing to go anywhere. No matter what the cost, we'll go. They were crazy, right? This is like crazy times a thousand. Crazy, crazy. Sure, take her. <laughs> so what do they do? Because they know God's in it. They released her. And they simply blessed her. Listen to verse 60. This is very significant. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. Do you remember back in Genesis 22? After Abraham exercised faith in taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah, and after God miraculously provided a substitute, a, a ram in place of Isaac, and Abraham named the place Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. It was at that time that the angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, I will surely bless you, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. And here there's a blessing being pronounced on this woman that echoes the same angelic blessing that came to Abraham. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. It, it ties this together incredibly. Because she is now walking as a type or an echo of Abraham. She has encountered the living God. She has seen that God has indeed called her to leave her family, to leave her country, to go to a land that she has never known, and to marry a man, a man of promise that she had never met. Incredible faith, incredible response. And so the blessing comes. Even as God has provided for Isaac and for Rebecca and for the world that awaits a Savior. Oh, sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. You know that God has indeed provided. He has provided for our greatest need because it will be through their offspring and offspring and the offspring and the generations that will come all the way down 
that to that moment on the mount of the Lord where he provides the lamb who will be slain for the sins of God's own people. Because God will give the great son of promise, Jesus. And through his death and through his resurrection, the great enemies of sin, death, and Satan will be destroyed. Jesus does possess the gates of his enemies. Jesus said to Peter that it will be through his church, right, that the gates of hell will not prevail, that the church will infiltrate and go forth, right, into all nations. The gates will not prevail because the victory is secured in the Savior who has given himself as the sacrifice for our sin and who has conquered death. His church is growing and multiplying all over the world, even in Eritrea, by his grace. God is pursuing a global bride from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And we get to stand just like the servant and we get to watch God woo and win a bride from all peoples because the true son of promise has come because we get to venture out in faith like Rebecca and hope that God has gone before us and we offer a greater treasure than what can fit on camels because the treasure of the gospel is the great treasure forgiven free from sin's grip free from fear of death free from whatever binds you free in the son who is free and so we see these three characters abraham the servant and rebecca abraham simply believes right he refuses to compromise he simply acts in faith confidence i love that throughout the story the servant remains nameless he's just a devoted servant of abraham and then later of Isaac, the nameless servant, reminds me many, many, many years later when Jesus spoke about John the Baptist as the greatest born among men or among women because John got to announce the Savior's arrival and he got to announce the, 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 the coming of the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus says something crazy. He says that the least in the kingdom of God will be greater than John. It's this reversal, this upside down. Who is going to be greatest in the kingdom forever and ever? The greatest is going to be the least. It's gonna be some nameless person who lived faithfully, absolutely believing and living out the truth of the gospel for the sake of the kingdom. It'll be a nameless servant. I doubt it will be any with names on books. It's gonna be someone that we haven't heard of. And we get to stand just like this nameless servant. And we get to passionately pursue Christ's name. And the question comes to us, how passionate are we for our name to be known and to be recognized? Are we content with being a nameless servant, right, pointing others to the one who has come? And the call comes to each one of us just like it did to Rebecca. The call comes to you and to me. We think that Rebecca was radical, but the truth is, is that the call of the gospel is a radical call. It is a call to abandon everything. It's no less radical. It is a call to be totally devoted. More than father, mother, 
son and daughter, wife and children, is a call to lay all of those things down for the sake of Christ. There is no comparison for Christ. Even if it costs me everything, give me the treasure of Christ. In fact, Jesus echoes those words in Luke 14. Then he comes to the end in verse 33 and he simply says, even his own life, if one doesn't hate even his own life, he can't be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Brothers and sisters, what are you clinging to? What are you clinging to? What would God call you to renounce? To be willing to lay down, to open that hand. Often our needs are the things that we think we need for me, right? To make me happy, to give me whatever. And often those are not the real needs. The real needs are met through surrender and through watching the God who goes before us meet needs in his way and in his time. Because Jesus invites us into greater promises. We can hold all things open-handed. We can deny ourselves for the joy of knowing Christ. And so the story ends. Verse 61 to 67, the servant took Rebecca and went his way. It concludes with the scene of their arrival. Isaac out meditating in the field. He looks up and behold, there's that word, right? Camels are coming. All right, Rebecca sees Isaac and asks the servant, who is the man walking in the field to meet us? It is my master. She veils herself. The servant communicates to Isaac everything that's taken place. And the story ends in verse 67. Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Okay, now we hear Isaac tied back to the previous chapter. Four years, Isaac has grieved the loss of his mom. Four years. This was the time for the healing of his own grief. And God knew and God loved Isaac even through those four years. Long years of waiting. And then God loved Isaac through the provision of Rebekah. And the truth is, is that Isaac loved and Isaac was comforted because God had loved Isaac. God had poured out his steadfast love on Isaac. Just as with Abraham, the servant, and Rebekah, it's God's faithful love that frees us not to idolize our needs or to exalt them above our great desperate need but to love and trust God and to be wowed by his grace and wowed by his provision that he brings about in his time. Because that is the very center of this story and it's so easy to miss it, right? We've seen it woven throughout, but actually woven right into the story is the call for us to stand back and be wowed by the steadfast love of our God. His hesed, that little Hebrew word, that we see translated steadfast love, or loving kindness. What is this steadfast love? What is this hesed? It is God's loyal love. It is God's covenant faithful love poured out on his people. It is his mercy and his compassion. It overflows from the wellspring of who God is, never ending for you and for me who stand in desperate need of God. The God who is full of hesed, 
is what chapter 24 is all about. It was touched in verse 12 and 14 with the servant's prayer, God, would you show hesed to Abraham? It was touched in verse 49, Bethuel and Laban, would you show hesed and faithfulness to Abraham? But the center of the story comes right into that moment when the servant is wowed by God's answer to his prayer. It comes to us right in verse 27. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his hesed. He has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. It's the first time that we find God's hesed directed towards God's covenant people. And this is a theme that's going to richly be woven throughout all of the rest of the Old Testament. It is who God is. God announces in Exodus, He is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in hesed. It's who He is. And He comes right here and He confronts us as the God who knows our needs before we ask, the God who goes before us, and the God on whom we can stand firm, knowing He is the God who is committed to loyal love and faithfulness to his people. And that's to you right where you are. This is who he is. We have an anchor that comes to us in his son, where his hesed is displayed, where we return again and again, because there's a reality, there's a hard reality for each one of us, because unlike the servant, we seek our name. And we're concerned with what people think of us. We want recognition. Can't even wash the dishes. <laughs> Somebody notice, right? Be seen, be recognized. Unlike Rebecca, we struggle to step out in faith and to do the hard thing. We struggle to surrender, to be willing to lay everything down. And unlike Abraham, we can settle for small compromises. And that is where the gospel comes and meets us. It is where God calls us to repent and believe, confess and turn and walk in faith and obedience. It is where the gospel says, yes, you who aren't like these people, come. And by his grace, may he give you the faith to walk in the faith of Abraham. May he give you the faith to walk as Rebecca. May he give you the faith to stand as the servant. Even as we turn in our desperate need for God, the God who does hesed with his people. So to put it simply, is God enough? Out of the fountain of God's hesed, are we satisfied? Am I satisfied in his love? God has spoken to us more clearly than he did to Abraham or his servant because he has spoken to us in his son, Hebrews chapter 1. He meets our needs more miraculously than he ever did Abraham. You know why? Paul actually says in Romans 8, 32, because God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that's not talking about big houses and lots of cars. It's talking about the meeting of the reality of our desperate needs. All that we truly need, he will meet. If he gave his son for our greatest needs, will he not meet the rest of our needs? Is he just going to leave us hanging? 
No. Like Abraham and like Isaac, we get to look back over all of this and you get to look back over your life and you get to recall and recount the deeds of the Lord. Don't forget his work as he's gone before you. Declare it to the generations. Stir up one another for love and good deeds because at the end of it all, we get God and he is the great treasure and he offers himself to us in his hesed and his faithfulness because he is the answer to our needs. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Pray, God, that you would lead us into the beauty of repentance and submission and give us eyes to see where you're at work, where we don't see, where you have gone before and you have answered even before we've uttered a word. Because you are a faithful father who loves your children and who knows our needs and who offers us the gift of yourself. May we walk in that. And your abundant has said and your great steadfast love poured out for us at the cross. And the son is set free is free indeed. May we walk in that great truth and that you are able to save to the uttermost the one who trusts in you.